And to introduce today's speaker, we are joined today by Dr. Boris Rosenberg. He is our current chief medical resident at Providence St. Vincent with the internal medicine program here. He uh, earned his undergrad degree at the University of Washington up in Seattle and his medical degree uh, from Toro University College of Osteopathic Medicine before joining us here at Providence St. Vincent for his internal medicine residency. Uh, it has been uh, an absolute treasure to work with Dr. Rosenberg over these past years, and he will be going on to pursue a career in primary care locally in the Portland area following his chief year. So I will turn it over to Dr. Rosenberg. Thanks. Thank you so much for that warm welcome. Um, yeah, you know, and I've been in the audience for these for like four years now, <laughs> watching these every Tuesday. So it's quite a quite an honor, honestly, to be to be up here to give one of these. And I'm super happy to see um, familiar faces here in the crowd and not just be online. So uh, today I'll be talking about so I'll be doing a, I'll be pursuing a career in, in primary care. And so um, today's talk is going to be a talk on super common primary care musculoskeletal complaints that <clears throat> if you if you are a resident, if you're a medical student, if you have a career in primary care, um, you'll see these come into the office more than once, more than twice, certainly. So my goal is to kind of provide an evidence-based approach of high yield history and physical exam findings um, that you can use to, to diagnose common complaints. Um, so for uh, disclosures, um, I do have one big disclosure. I do sit on the advisory board for a big chondroitin and big glucosamine company. So this will be prominent in this lecture. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I have no, I have no disclosures and I imagine there's a roaring laughter out in the virtual world from that my one joke. So <laughs> um, no, I have no conflicts of interest. I have no disclosures. Um, I got like uh, Dr. Waiter said, I am the, the chief resident here and I'll be doing primary care. So I just have a strong interest in um, educating myself about this topic that I'll surely be seeing. So um, the objectives here is uh, I kind of touched on a little bit. Excuse me. I want to review common musculoskeletal complaints which present a primary care. Um, likelihood ratios are going to be talked a lot about frequently during this talk, so I want to briefly review them at the start. Um, and then we'll kind of go through, like I said, the high yield history and physical exam findings that you can use with the highest, with the best positive likelihood ratios, the best negative likelihood ratios. And in the end, this should leave the audience kind of with a strategy for attaining a focused history and physical um, exam. So let's jump into our first case. The first case is Rob. He's a 70-year-old man. Uh, he has no major medical problems. He's coming in for low back pain. Um, low back pain is kind of the first the complaint that I'll be talking about, but he's been having this going on for several for the past several months. It's worse with standing. It's worse with walking. He also develops this dull, aching left posterior leg pain, thigh pain after walking for several minutes, and so he has some tingling in his soles and his feet. Rob's pain is better when he leans forward while standing and your neurologic exam is completely normal. So think about this case for a minute and think about in your head what a differential diagnosis would look like um, for Rob. And so I'll kind of pause for about five seconds. So I think a, a reasonable, 
a reasonable differential diagnosis you think about for low back pain is a herniated disc. Uh, does he have any spinal or facet arthropathy, osteoarthritis? Does he have degenerative disc disease? Does he have lumbar spinal stenosis? And then lastly, I don't think we should uh, forget is peripheral arterial disease in these in older patients coming in with exertional leg pain. So when we talk about likelihood ratios, um, like I said, they'll be they'll be talked about frequently during this talk, um, and I just want to briefly go over them what a likelihood ratio is. So they're kind of a way, um, they're a tool to help a clinician go from a pretest probability to a post-test probability, and they're used to interpret diagnostic tests. So the the quick part about it is the, the higher the positive the likelihood ratio, the more likely that you have a diagnosis, and the lower um, the, the lower the likelihood ratio, the less likely, with one being that it doesn't really move the needle very much uh, between pre, your pretest and post-test probability. Now, the hardest part about this is kind of is estimating a pretest probability. Um, there's a few different ways about to go about it, and you what the first way is you assemble a different uh, a list of differential diagnoses and rank them based on probability. And one way to rank them based on probability is just using your memory uh, for similar cases and you guide uh, to guide these estimates of, and for the patient in front of you. But, but we all know that that memory is not precise, it's imperfect, and it's subject to influence from recent vivid um, experiences. So you're certainly um, under the risk of being biased by just using your memory. But another way is you, you can take advantage of evidence and you use clinical decision tools and prediction prediction rules to help determine a pretest probability. One that I can think of that's related to here is, you know, your Ottawa ankle rules. This, um, these help you, these are a clinical decision tool to help you decide, do you need to get um, x-rays when somebody has a, a, an ankle injury to look for fracture? So once you get a pretest probability on, on the right side is Fagan's nomogram here, on the left is a pretest probability. Once you kind of estimate that and you know the likelihood ratio of the test, you draw a line between the pretest, the likelihood ratio, and you arrive at a post test probability. And like I said, the higher the likelihood ratio, um, the more likely it's, it is to shift the needle between pretest and post test. Um, one rule that we like to teach here in our residency and uh, most places is the 2 5 10 rule. Um, if a likelihood ratio is two, it increases your probability by 15, 5, 30, 10, 45%, and similarly negatively. So that's just a brief review of likelihood ratios. Like I said, I'll be talking about them a lot throughout this talk. So if we go back to Rob, um, you take a good history. You know, the first thing you wanna do for low back pain is to rule out red flag symptoms. Let's say you do that. Rob doesn't have any red flag symptoms. So the further, some further questions that you wanna ask yourself is his posterior thigh pain or radiculopathy and therefore related to his back pain? Or is it um, his exertional leg pain is more arterial in nature? Um, could he have spinal stenosis? And these are all kind of questions that you um, that you ask yourself as you work your way down your differential diagnosis for, for Rob's low back pain. So anatomy really helps us understand what is going on clinically. Um, on the left, we have kind of a normal view of the spinal canal. And on the right, we have an abnormal image showing stenosis at multiple different places. So the first place that you can have a stenosis is if you have a herniated disc, a disc bulge. We've all heard about this. And what it can cause is it can cause central canal stenosis. If it goes into the central canal, of course, it can cause lateral recess stenosis, foraminal stenosis. 
the latter of the two are kind of peripheral stenoses. But one, one method is to have it if a patient has a disc bulge. Another way in older patients is that we must remember that facet joints are just like any other joints. They're just like elbows, they're just like knees and shoulders, they're joints. So they're subject to osteoarthritis, arthropathy. And when you have kind of this increase in tissue because of arthritis in these tight little spaces, they can cause foraminal stenosis and lateral recess stenosis causing radiculopathies. So that's kind of a, a little bit of a background on um, on the on the anatomy for low back pain and the most common causes of low back pain. So one of the, one of the diagnoses on your differential is is spinal stenosis and does Rob have spinal stenosis? Um, so the our best tool for for a his in in terms of the history for spinal stenosis that they found in the evidence is likelihood ratios of 7.4 and 6.4 is does, if, if Rob has no pain while he's sitting down and better with bending forward. And you can imagine that these go hand in hand together because they're both kind of flexing the hips and they're increasing the area within the spine. So if you wanted to get focused history, these are two very important questions to have because if if they're, if Rob has um, pain while he's, or if he has, if his pain is better with bending forward and he's having no pain while sitting down, that, that really increases your likelihood, you know, between 30 and 40 percent uh, for spinal stenosis. And right there with them is um, if he's complaining of bilateral buttock pain. All of these have excellent likely, excellent positive likelihood ratios. But I'd argue the best tool that we have to diagnose the, and the best history question that you can ask um, to determine if uh, in your evaluation for spinal stenosis is to ask about neurogenic claudication. And the reason I think it's better, even though it doesn't have as good of a positive likelihood ratio as, as your other um, historical clues, it has whatever Rob says, if he says he does have neurogenic claudication or he doesn't have neurogenic claudication, that's quite helpful to you. Versus, you know, if if the patient had no pain while seated, if he had pain, if he didn't have that, the negative likelihood ratio isn't, you know, it wasn't as helpful, it was near one. So, um, this historical clue has a very solid positive likelihood. Well, it has an okay positive likelihood ratio, but a very good negative likelihood ratio. And just to um, define what neurogenic claudication is, um, it's, it's pain from the buttock radiating distally into the legs that is worse with standing or walking. So it's exertional, but it's also standing. And this is one of your best clues to, to kind of distinguish arterial disease versus neurologic disease. Um, is if the patient has a lot of pain while prolonged standing, that, sh that shouldn't really be arterial disease. That should mostly be uh, neurologic, and that's defined as neurogenic claudication. Um, so, and then the last, oh, and then the last, the last tool is we, we have to remember that this is a disease of older adults, and the, the cutoff a lot of papers use is 65. Uh, which has a pretty good positive and negative likelihood ratio too. So my key, my key takeaways for this is, is if you're thinking about spinal stenosis, um, it's a disease of older adults, um, ask about positional pain, right? If, they're, if they have no pain while they're seated, if, they're, if it's better with bending forward, and then neurogenic claudication. And those, that should be a very good focused history for spinal stenosis. Um, and that should go should move the needle a far away and you should have a good idea of the, of the diagnosis after your history. 
the physical exam is there's only there's only in the evidence out there, there there's been found two um, two physical exam maneuvers uh, for spinal stenosis. Um, and one of them I don't you know, one of them I don't really I didn't really incorporate before this into my physical exam and it's an abnormal Romberg test. Um, if you guys remember Romberg, it's super easy to do in, in the um, in your office. The patient just the patient stands there, close their eyes and you kind of watch them sway or not sway. And um, this is, you know, classically the Romberg was thought to be a test for cerebellar function. Um, and it actually has very little to do with the cerebellum. It's a, it's a test for proprioception, how where you are in space. Um, and what, what um, the spinal part that's kind of affected by this is the posterior column where I so beautifully eloquently outlined it red here is the, um, that's the posterior column and it's, it's supposed to be for proprioception, vibration. And so if you have a disc bulge that's going into the spinal canal and it's impinging on that, you're gonna have an issue with proprioception. Um, so when you close your eyes, you're gonna kind of sway because a lot of these patients depend on their eyes for where they are in space. Um, and the last one is actually has a has a very good likelihood ratio, although I, I see it very un, infrequently, um, is you just watch the patient walk. Um, and if you watch the patient walk and they have a wide base gait, that should tip you off um, immensely, uh, immensely that the uh, this patient might have spinal lumbar spinal stenosis. Uh, and again, this is an issue with the posterior column of the spinal canal. So that's kind of the history and the physical exam. So if we go back to Rob and think about his presentation, you know, the physical exam, there's not much to it, right? It's a Romberg and it's and, and it's watching them walk. The history is where the keys are for spinal stenosis. So he's a 70 year old man, so he's higher than 65. He's got pain that's worse with standing. Um, that's neurogenic claudication. Pain after walking, that's also neurogenic claudication. And he's and it's positional. It's better when he leans forward. We call that frequently the people uh, were taught that that's the shopping cart sign in medical school. And I think it should be glad to know that there's a lot of good evidence behind it that that's actually uh, really helpful to diagnose spinal stenosis. So all in all, I think a, you know a diagnosis of spinal stenosis is very likely for Rob. So let's change his story just a little bit. Um, now he comes into the clinic with left-sided low back pain, past month, left calf pain. It, the pain is pretty bad when he sits for a long time and standing. No position makes it better, and he's and um, he's got no improvement when bending forward or backward. But he's got a positive crossed straight, crossed left-sided straight leg raise. And he's got some a weak um, strength exam and specifically ankle dorsiflexion on that same side compared to the right. So what you want to do is, you know, think about a differential diagnosis. And I would argue that your differential for this patient for Rob part two is uh, pretty similar to Rob part one, Rob, our first first Rob. Um, you know, you think about spinal stenosis, but with what we just went over, if you, He's got no pain. He's got pain with sitting. It doesn't, it's not really positional at all. You're kind of thinking that this might not be spinal stenosis. So we have herniated disc. We have facet osteoarthritis here. And we all, and we always have uh, arterial disease in older patients with, with leg pain. But now he's got this positive crossed straight leg raise. And you remember that you learned something about a straight leg raise in medical school. Um, 
what is what is a cross straight leg raise? What is the significance of his of his weak um, ankle on his weak ankle on his left side? So the other super common diagnosis that you need to consider besides spinal stenosis in a patient with low back pain is lumbosacral radiculopathy. It's the most common L4, L5, L5, S1. These are these are really, really common. And so the physical exam is going to be um, is going is to help you a lot. And then what are the highest yield physical exam uh, maneuvers? And our, our best test is actually that, you know, I kind of put it in there in the in the in the case presentation, but you know, weak ankle dorsiflexion is actually our best physical exam maneuver to tell if a patient has lumbosacral radiculopathy. It will shift the needle about 30%. Um, our next test, you know, like I said, we learn about the straight leg raise in medical school, um, but in fact, you'll see in the in the next little bit that the straight leg raise doesn't actually doesn't actually move the needle all that much. The likelihood ratio is, is pretty close to one. Um, here, I'll just put it on here uh, on there. So it's 1.5. So, uh, you know, just to define what a straight leg raise is, you know, the patient, I think most of us know this, but I, I do want to get on the same page. Patients lying on their back and you fully, fully lift their extended leg and pain all the way down past the knee is a positive test. If, if the pain's kind of above the knee, it doesn't really, doesn't really cut it. But if they're having pain all the way down the leg, when you lift up their fully extended leg, uh, flexing at the hips, um, and the cross straight leg is, of course, you do the contralateral leg and the pain is in the same side. Um, but what I wanted to point out here is that, you know, the the strength exam is important for radiculopathy. Um, and, you know, I it would, the straight leg raise doesn't really move the needle all that much, uh, whereas the cross straight leg raise kind of helps you a little bit more. It's almost around the 20% mark. So, you know, with Rob's cross straight leg raise, being positive and he has got weak ankle dorsiflexion, um, you know, he probably has a diagnosis of lumbosacral radiculopathy. Uh, and most commonly, this happens from a herniated disc. Um, so you prescribe physical therapy, you tell Rob, hey, like, this will get better. Like 80% of these cases get better over time, nothing to worry about. Um, but then Rob gives you some additional history items. He says he stopped going on his daily walks because he fears the pain will get worse. Uh, because his back pain will get worse. He's taking time off work. He's and he's looking into disability and sick leave because of because of this back pain. And you wonder to yourself, is this history important, or do you or can you kind of brush it off? Um, so back pain in primary care, um, super common, fifth common, most reason out of all not just musculoskeletal. We kind of all know this. We see this all the time. The vast majority are going to be diagnosed with non-specific back pain. Um, and most will not develop chronic back pain. We're all taught that it, it gets better within four to six weeks with just conservative care. Um, we know that common imaging findings only very weakly correlate to a patient's symptoms, and that's why our physical exam is so important because um, that's what's really going to diagnose these issues. It's not going to be the imaging. And we know that patients with chronic low back pain account for markedly disproportionate healthcare costs. You know, one paper estimated 50 to 100 billion a year. 75% uh, are attributed to chronic disabling low back pain, which is a very just a small sliver of the total population of patients with back pain, as most of these patients get better. So the question is, can we predict, can we help predict, you know, can primary care doctors predict which of these patients are going to go from acute pain to chronic pain? 
Um, and there's a couple help, helpful findings. Um, the, you know, as it turns out, those additional findings that Rob gave us were actually kind of helpful to tell, to kind of clue you in that, hey, his acute back pain might not get better in four to six weeks, and he might have chronic low back pain, and he might, you might be seeing him in your office um, on, on more frequent occasions. Um, so the two are our, our two two tools that we have, our two historical clues that we have are maladaptive behavior and patients with more psychiatric comorbidities, usually depression, um, anxiety. But the maladaptive behavior, um, what, what that's basically defined is what kind of Rob was telling us, you know, is fear avoidance. He's avoiding work, he's avoiding daily walks, he's avoiding doing things that they normally do because they're worried that the back pain will get worse. Um, and, you know, I'll say that these are these likelihood ratios are not are certainly not earth shattering, right? 2.5, 2.2. Um, but in the right clinical context, in the right clinical patient, they can help primary care doctors kind of predict and um, be ready for, for what's what's to come. Or what's potentially to come. And these are kind of some of the. Um, some of the findings that are not well correlated. I don't know if any of these surprise you. You know, some of them that surprised me are intensity of pain and radiculopathy. I just think that like, oh, if a patient has radiculopathy, then it's something more serious and they're more likely to have chronic low back pain. And that's actually not the case that not, not the case. Or if somebody comes in, I vividly remember a patient when I was a resident came in with just severe, severe acute low back pain. Like she um, she was just doing something and she hurt her back and it was she was just in so much pain, could barely make it into the office. Um, and I was like, my God, like she's going to have back pain forever. Um, but that's not the case. Actually, intensity of pain, you know, even if they come like limping into your young patients or something come limping into your office because of this, you can still be fairly reassure, reassure them that this is this will get better with conservative care and you don't need to, you know, jump to imaging right away. Thank you for my attending for not <laughs> for stopping me from getting that MRI that day. <laughs> um, so low back pain take home points, you know, um, two super common disease processes, right? Spinal stenosis and lumbosacral radiculopathy. We'll see these, we'll see these a lot. These are patients with pain that, that you know, going down their legs. Um, focus on neurogenic claudication and positional pain for spinal stenosis. And then for the for radiculopathy, your your cross straight leg raise is going to be a lot better than your straight leg raise. In fact, the straight leg raise doesn't help all that much anyway. Um, so if you want to think about taking out exams, taking out musculoskeletal exams that don't help you move that much, that could be one. And then your strength exam is key. And then look out for yellow. These are in the literature. These are considered yellow flags um, to help predict who's going to go from acute to chronic back pain. These are and the, the biggest ones are maladaptive behaviors and psychiatric comorbidities. You know, you really want to encourage these patients to continue doing what they were doing before and not be fearful that um, that their pain is going to get worse. So that's that's low back pain. Um, my next case is Mary. Mary's a 65 year old female. She has no significant medical problems and she's coming to the office with right shoulder pain for many months that and it has recently wor worsened. She's got no history of trauma. She works as a cleaning lady. On exam, she's able to abduct her arm 180 degrees. She's able to pull, put her arm all above her head, but she starts having some discomfort at 90 degrees, about halfway there. And your neuro neurologic exam is normal, including your including strength testing. So think about what a differential diagnosis in your head would look like for this patient for kind of one month. Um, 
sorry, many months uh, of shoulder pain. Um, and it can, you know, I, I think at the top of, at the top of your list needs to be rotator cuff disease, and this is kind of all encompassing of impingement syndrome, tendonitis, bursitis. Um, and similar with rotator cuff disease, do they have do they have a rotator cuff tear? Um, do they have frozen shoulder, osteoarthritis? And could this be referred pain from her neck or cervical spine? So shoulder pain in primary care. It's the third most common complaint, third most common musculoskeletal complaint. You have back pain being number one, knee pain number two, shoulder pain number three. Uh, shoulder, you know, in the shoulder, out of all the joints, it has the widest range of motion and it's most prone to injury. No other joint has a wider range of motion. It's the only location in the human body where tendons actually run between moving bones. And these spaces are super, super tight. So any inflammation, degeneration, tears are really going to cause issues and it doesn't take all that much. Um, and I don't know if anybody else has learned about, you know, I, everyone in the room has learned about the shoulder exam, but, you know, there is a vast, vast amount of tests. Um, you know, some websites show like 130 tests, uh, you know, to do for the show to evaluate the shoulder. And so how are you going to how are you going to figure out which one? So my so what I want to do is I want to basically and I, and I want to preface this that unfortunately the section does has the does have the most amount of tests. I, I want I want you guys to remember about like seven of them, which kind of <laughs> sounds like a lot on the surface, but these are the ones that with the most with the best evidence behind them and the ones that are really going to help you make a diagnosis one way or another. Um, and like I said, we have to remember that the most common cause of shoulder uh, shoulder pain is um, is rotator cuff disease. So really quick on the anatomy on the left, we have the bones. Um, and so uh, the shoulder is made up of three bones that come together to make two joints. You have the glenohumeral joint and then you have the acromioclavicular joint. And on the right is, is a cross section of this area. And it's, as you can see, like the areas are very, very small. You have the subacromial bursa and the supraspinatus tendon there going between the acromion and the humerus. I mean, it's the spaces are very, very tight. It does not take much inflammation uh, to, to start causing issues. So for rotator cuff, um, the physical exam, like I said, this is where I want you to remember about like about four tests here. Our best test for rotator cuff disease. So this is this section is going to go over rotator cuff disease because it is the most com by far the most common cause of shoulder pain. Um, your painful arc is going to be your best test. It has it has the best likelihood ratio for rotator cuff disease, and it's super easy to do. You, all you all you do is you ask the patient to kind of abduct their arm to 180 degrees and if they start having pain somewhere about halfway there then you have a positive painful arc you know interestingly um our next best the next best test with the best evidence for rotator cuff disease is the Jurgensen test and um i wish there was a better name i wish there was another name but the Jurgensen test is um a test for bicep tendonitis. Um, so I'll put it up here. So what you do is you have the patient flex, flex the elbow at 90 degrees and you supinate against um, resistance. And the biceps uh, is a supinator. And so if you have pain there, then you have a positive test. And interestingly, this, this test is thought to be, um, was long taught as uh, to diagnose bicep tendonitis as, um, 
as a singular entity, but we now know that most patients with bicep tendonitis also have rotator cuff disease, and actually, which has led the Jurgensen test, this bicep tendonitis, to be the second best test for rotator cuff disease. And, and these, the other two tests that are very common um, that we do are the NEAR test and the Hawkins test. By themselves, they don't have very good evidence. These are impingement tests. That what they do is they're supposed to make that already small area of the shoulder joint even smaller. Um, and so um, by themselves, they don't have great likelihood ratios. They're like right around one. But the reason that you, I would recommend that you do these is that together, if they're if they're both negative, um, that has a very good negative likelihood ratio. It's a good. It would be pretty good at ruling out rotator cuff disease. Point one. That's like right around. You know, almost almost rules it out really. Um, and the test that we all learn, I think, in medical school, the one I remember for some reason so prominently is the empty can test. Um, I think. You know, that's one test that you can probably, if you want, if you want to get rid of it in your arsenal, I would feel free to because it, it doesn't have very good evidence behind it. And there's enough shoulder exams, uh, exam maneuvers out there that, you know, the more you can get rid of, the better. Um, but I would, I would recommend these four tests in your shoulder exam, the painful arc, the Jurgensen, and then the Hawkins and Near tests. But arguably, the the most important, I would say, role of the primary care physician in somebody that comes in with shoulder pain is to identify those with full rotator cuff tears because that has a very different management plan. And those are the patients that you really need to be referring to an orthopedic specialist for consideration of surgery. Um, and because if you miss those, then issues issues happen down the road. Um, but thankfully, we have really, really good tests, uh, really good physical exam tests with high likelihood ratios um, to identify rotator cuff tears. And our best one is the external, and there's there's three tests here. So that would make up our seven that I was hoping you, uh, that I would like you to remember. And the first one is the external rotation lag test. It's, it's very easy to do the diagrams right there. You, you have the patient flex the elbow at 90 degrees and you externally rotate and you have them hold that position. If that's positive, your likelihood ratio is 7.2. Um, that's, that's a really good likelihood ratio. And then the, the second test is conversely the internal rotation lag test. You internally rotate the shoulder and you have them just hold it there. And if they can't hold a certain position, then that's really indicative both positive and negative likelihood ratio of a full rotator cuff tear. So we have the external rotation lag and the internal rotation lag. Um, and then the last one is the drop arm test, which you can very easily do um, while you're doing your painful arc. You basically just ask the patient to lift their lift their arms up over their head and if slowly lower it down. And if they can't do it in a smooth process, then that's a positive drop arm test. But you know, I think we I think we should be pretty relieved with how how good they're how good the evidence is behind probably arguably the primary care physician's most important role in a in a patient with shoulder pain. Um, like these are these are really good tests. I think you can feel very confident uh, to diagnose a tear if you have a positive, uh, a positive or negative result. And then lastly, you have the um, the AC joint. Um, the most common, the most com uh, it, it's 
another area that you just want the last area that you want to think about in, in the shoulder joint the ac joint is has um, chromial clavicular osteoarthritis is probably the most common and the easiest test is a crossed adductor test you just ask the patient to uh, put their arm across their shoulder. Um, really good, good, good positive, but pretty good negative likelihood ratio. So that's the last test um, I would say, and the one with the best. Um, so these are the tests with the best evidence, evidence behind them for your shoulder exam. That's about seven or eight tests. Um, I think it's pretty good to lower that from like 130. <laughs> so, um, so if we go back to Mary, um, she works as a cleaning lady, so she's certainly at risk for. Um, repetitive injury. She has she has a positive painful arc because she's having discomfort around the around 90 degrees um, and she has normal strength testing. So I think you could say that there's a there's a very good high likelihood that she has rotator cuff disease and you could safely rule out that she does not have a tear and you prescribe physical therapy. All right. So that's shoulder pain. So we've gone over back pain. We've gone over shoulder pain. Um, the next case is two is actually two cases. Um, Sylvia. So she's sixty year old six year old lady coming to the office with left sided groin pain for six months. Uh, it's it's pretty bad with walking up and down stairs. Hasn't really changed over the last six months. She works as a school teacher. Um, and on your exam. The left leg has decreased range of motion in abduction and internal rotation, and this is referring to the hip. So that's our first case. Um, and our second case is Stephen, who's also who's, a six, who's also 60 years old. He's a man. He's coming in with six months of left hip pain, just generalized. Um, Though stable up until two weeks ago when the pain worsened after a long walk. Your exam is unremarkable. He's got equal range of motion on both sides. Um, you know, normal normal neurologic exam. Hip x-rays are showing mild joint space narrowing with some osteophytes indicative of mild hip osteoarthritis. And Stephen's asking you, does, is, is the cause of his pain because of his um, osteoarthritis? You know, you want to consider a differential for for each one of these cases. Hip osteoarthritis for hip pain, really. You know, hip OA is right at the top there. Um, but then you also have sacroiliac disease. You have bursitis. You can have trochanteric bursitis, iliopsoas, and then of course you have um, your neurologic causes. You know, lumbar radiculopathy that we talked about, sciatica, um, and then you know more rare causes like neuralgia parasthetica that can cause hip pain. So if we talk about the hip, the hip joint lies deep in the lower pelvis. It's surrounded by a lot of big, big musculature. Um, that and what that does is that limits the well localized somatic sensation. So most patients that with hip pain come come in telling are very hard to localize. So this is kind of the anterior and posterior diagram of somebody that would you know the average location that a patient would come in with with hip pain and as you can see it's not super helpful it's it's kind of pretty generalized and that's largely because of these large large muscles that are surrounding the hip that help protect it from the out, outside um, a lot of a lot of patients feel pain at distant sites innervated by the same nerves of the hip and to complicate this even further you know long-standing hip pain is going to cause compensation at, at the knees at the ankles so somebody with knee pain you know comes in 
or somebody with a, with an issue at the hip comes in with knee pain, and that that really can confuse um, the evaluation in the in the primary care physician. You know, hip radiographs, hip X-rays, they're the most commonly used imaging to evaluate hip pain. They're cheap, they're easy to get. Um, it helps identify osteoarthritis. It helps rule out other causes. Um, but you know, one theme that you'll see in musculoskeletal complaints is that the imaging findings um, a lot of times don't correlate well with with symptoms. Uh, you know, there's this large population study um, that it was a cohort study, and what it found was that only 21% of patients with radiographic osteoarthritis actually had hip pain. And what that what has, that has the potential to do is um, lead the clinician to an incorrect diagnosis of osteoarthritis and an unhelpful treatment plan. Um, so it's it's always important to establish a pretest probability before ordering these these X-rays because um, you got to know what what you'll do with a positive test result. And and to, this further shows that you know the UK NIH actually recommends diagnosing osteo hip osteoarthritis without any imaging in in persons older than 45 with without prolonged morning stiffness. Of course, the the prolonged morning stiffness is gonna um, you you want to think about uh, inflammatory causes of hip pain. So for hip osteoarthritis is the most common cause of hip pain. Um, it's the most common cause of hip pain in the population. Um, and so the history, how good is the history? Well, right away we know pain with walking, um, not super helpful. The likelihood ratio is, right, is one. Our best history tool is if a patient has pain in the medial thigh. If there's pain in the medial thigh, I mean, gosh, in an older patient with long-standing hip pain, that, that really kind of solidifies the diagnosis a little bit, as, as kind of weird as that sounds. Uh, just the location um, of the pain, and then pain with up and down stairs, and then we know that this is a this is a diagnosis of older adults. So you really want to question your diagnosis if uh, if this is a younger patient. So the cutoff that multiple papers have used is 60 years old, but if they're younger than 60, then your negative likelihood ratio is about 0.1, and you could really, you know, 45% decrease in your probability of that diagnosis. Which is which is probably your pretest probability shouldn't even be very high in, in the first place if somebody's younger, younger than sixty, and then you move it down. Forty-five percent. Um, the physical exam is probably our best tool to diagnose hip hip osteoarthritis, um, and so our best tool, you know, likelihood ratio of ten. Uh, if your internal rotation is reduced, we often call this the 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 windshield wiper test. Um, you know, it says negative, you know, these papers have to pick a number. It says less than 15 degrees, you know, normal is 30. So you don't really have to remember these numbers, but if you do one side and then the other side's less than about half, then, you know, that has a likelihood ratio of 10. So an older patient with hip pain, you know, greater than 60 coming in with, with um, decreased internal rotation, you can really bank on that being osteoarthritis. You know, I, I kind of hesitated whether to include the squat leading to posterior pain because I, tr I just imagine in my head how many of our patients you're going to ask to squat in the in the exam room and I want to say like 10% can do it <laughs> out, of the, out of the patients coming in with older patients with hip pain. Um, 
But if, if they have groin pain on, if they have any pain in groin pain specifically on abduct, abduction or adduction, that has a, that has a really good uh, positive likelihood ratio too. And um, decreased range of motion in abduction. So if you kind of take that leg and you move it out, uh, and there's de and there's a decrease in motion has, that has pretty good negative likelihood ratio. So what do you want to take away from this uh, slide is that internal rotation and ab and abduction um, are probably your two best physical exam tools. You can do them, uh, you know, from these diagrams, you can do them when, um, right at the, when, do them at, um, when the patient's just lying on their back, you don't have to move them around all that much. Um, so if we go back to Sylvia, you know, she's 60 years old, so she's right at that cutoff. She's got pain when she walks up and down the stairs, which we know is a, um, is more predictive of osteoarthritis than just walking in general. Um, and she has decreased range of motion in our two mo the two most important planes of motion for to evaluate hip pain, abduction and internal rotation. So um, a diagnosis of hip OA is very likely. And then if we go to Steven, um, he's 60 years old too, but he's got, you know, he's got normal, normal, so equal ranges of motion on both sides of his legs. I, but so this is one example where, you know, hip radiographs were ordered, you know, the, um, and they showed some mild OA, but chances are that his hip pain is probably not related to his osteoarthritis, radiographic osteoarthritis, and you should think about an, a different diagnosis. Uh, to help explain his hip pain. Okay, last case. Joe, 72 year old guy coming in with knee swelling over the past few weeks. He has a history of chronic, chronic knee pain for many years, but a couple weeks ago he fell, suffered a ground level fall, and since then has had swelling. And he's he can't really fully he can't he's having he limps and he can't really fully extend his knee since sustaining the fall, and he's coming to your office for uh, for help for guidance. So the last the last um, section that I want to talk about is knee pain. You know we talked about back pain being the most common. Knee pain is actually the second most common cause. It counts out of all the physician visits, um, three to five percent. That's like a really high. That's not just musculoskeletal. That's just all all physician visits knee pain. Um, and a large number get referred for diagnostic imaging, a large number get specialty care. Um, so um, it's it's important to know about, um, and we it's important to know about the highest yield physical exam in history um, to help diagnose these issues. Um, the first thing to know about is what are the most common frequently, uh, the most con most frequently injured internal structures within the knee out of the ligaments and menisci. So the menisci are up there, uh, but actually the MCL and the ACL, the medial collateral ligament and the anterior cruciate ligament are the two most common. Uh, the PCL uh, is actually super rarely injured. Um, and I'll tell you why that's kind of sad in a, in a few slides. I know that sounds weird, but I'll tell you why it's unfortunate. Um, but your other diagnoses that you want to consider, of course, is fracture, arthritis, um, and bursitis. So, did you guys know that there was also an auto, Ottawa knee rules for fracture? Um, we all learn about the Ottawa ankle rules, but the, there's a Ottawa knee rules that actually have really good um, evidence behind them. They're basically these five criteria. I wouldn't remember them, but they're similar to the Ottawa ankle rules where there's tenderness at different sites around the knee. 
and your inability to you know do things on your knee. Um, but if you're all negative, you know these help these help uh, determine which patients need to get radiographs immediately after sustaining a knee injury. Um, and if all five are negative, then you really you you don't need to order X-rays. Um, you know. I will say I added this and it doesn't really apply to our patient because this is supposed to be kind of immediately after an injury. Um, like within you know a day or so, like our patient suffered a ground level fall a couple of weeks ago, but it, you could, it's still important to think about. Just know that Ottawa knee rules are out there. They exist. You can easily look them up um, and it'll really help answer the question on whether you should be getting an X, sending your patient for an X-ray. Um, the thing I want to take away from in these last couple of minutes in these last two slides, we're going to go over meniscal injury physical exam and uh, ligam ligament injury physical exam. And what we're really taught, the thing I want you guys to take away from for these next two slides is what we're taught in medical school actually has really good evidence behind it, and we should be confident when we get positive or negative results um, on these tests. So the first, the best, the for a meniscal injury, which um, these are common, these are one of the most common internal structures that are injured. You know, a joint infusion, joint swelling is going to be your best tool, and then the McMurray sign is is um, is the the best physical exam, uh, and that's actually one of the only ones I know of for meniscal injuries. But we know it has good evidence behind it. Uh, and then if the patients if the patient can't extend their knee fully, so these three are kind of your best tools. The easiest one is just say, hey, is there swelling or not? And then you do the McMurray. Joint line tenderness, not, not super helpful. Um, and then for your ligament injury, um, remember what the most common one, it was the ACL, MCL, um, ACL and MCL. So we're always taught in medical school that the Lachman and the anterior drawer um, test uh, in medical school and these are these have amazing like positive likelihood ratios and we should become you know you can probably just pick one and and do it uh, whichever one's easier for you I know for a lot of people the anterior drawer is easier than the Lachman and I think you should feel confident to just go with the anterior drawer if that's what you feel comfortable with you know we have our valgus stress for the MCL really good positive really good negative likelihood ratios and this is the part that's sad that the PCL isn't injured more often <laughs> is that uh, it, this is probably the best test I've ever seen for likelihood ratios, you know, almost, basically 100 for the positive and 0 0.1 for the negative. You should still do it, but man, if you get a positive close to your drawer, no need for that MRI. <laughs> um, so if we go back to Joe, um, he had swell, he, the two main points that you want to take away from, he had swelling and he couldn't fully extend his knee. Um, I didn't tell you anything about his Lachman or anterior or his ligament injury, uh, ligament physical exam, but uh, with these two alone, um, the swelling and the inability to extend his knee, I mean, those have positive enough likelihood ratios that um, you should really think about, about a meniscal injury. Uh, and these are kind of um, like points that, you know, you wouldn't think have, you wouldn't think like, oh, just because there's swelling that should really lead me down one path, um, but sometimes it can. So he probably, Joe had, probably has a degenerative meniscal tear uh, on top of his likely knee osteoarthritis. He has chronic medial knee pain for, for many years. And you do, and you, you know, conservative treatment should be conservative, physical therapy with quadriceps strengthening and, um, and pain control before considering operative management. Cool.
And that's all I have for you guys. Great, thank you so much, Dr. Rosenberg. Um, really nice to have a talk that focuses on, on diagnosis, um, which is often a real challenge in medicine. Um, have some out of an audience here in the room. I take any questions uh, if there are thoughts here live and also feel free to post your questions online. Well, I'm gonna start off with one while our audience thinks if they have any questions. Um, Thanks for giving us reminders of many of these maneuvers and also ones that have better evidence. Um, sometimes uh, it can be challenging to remember how to do these correctly um, or to, to reference back things that you've taught us. Have you come across a musculoskeletal resource that you would recommend um, for further review? Yeah, good question. Yeah, most people will have a hard time remembering um, all, all of these and, and, you know, just like similar to a lot of presentations. So the resources, you know, um, the Stanford physical exam tool that a lot of people know about has has really good videos um, and explanations on positive negative results. Um, and then the New England Journal of Medicine has uh, their back to the physical exam series, which um, has a lot of this material on how to do these physical exam maneuvers too. Great, thank you. Uh, any questions here in the room? Great, and if not, I think we've had such clarity at our presentation. Um, so thank you, Dr. Rosenberg. We'll give everybody a moment, a gift of free time. Thank you. Thank you, guys. <laughs>